Hello storytellers, welcome to Mentorless, an audio experiment where I talk with filmmakers about one particular project that has asked them to stretch their creativity beyond what they could have imagined. During this first season, I unfold how my guests took their creative project from idea to completion in the real world. How did they find money? How did they make money? What are the mistakes they made? How long did it really take them to go from A to Z? What strategies did they use or abandoned along the way? And what will they do differently next time? I'm your host, Nathalie Sejean from Mentorless.com. And I am French. As you can hear, I have an accent and I do sometimes make mistakes in English. But hopefully my passion for this topic will make it okay. For this first episode, I talked with British storyteller Adam Westbrook. You might be familiar with Adam's work and more particularly with his video essays that were often Vimeo staff picked over the years. During this conversation, we tackle many subjects, including gatekeepers on the internet, the pros and cons of Vimeo and YouTube, the delicate art of asking money to create, the attitude to have when you open a Patreon page, and much, much more. I had an absolute blast talking with Adam. I learned a ton and hope you'll feel the same. Enjoy. Adam, thanks for being on the Mentorless podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. If we go on your website, you can read, I am an independent video artist weaving pictures and stories together to make things fascinating. Is this how you still define yourself today? If you meet someone, you say, I'm an independent video artist? Yeah, I, I find my sort of definition of myself changes all the time. Um, and if you go if you go back in the Wayback Machine and you look at what my website was five years ago, it said something completely different. And if you go back another three years, it was completely different again. Um, I'm sort of slowly, yeah, just trying to get more, I guess over time, I try and get more honest, maybe. Uh, it's interesting actually hearing you read um, that description because before that, I when I started doing the video essays, um, which was at the end of 2013 or 2014, I did this thing that and now I look back on it, strikes me as kind of strange, but also I can, I can see why I did it. But I kind of I created this whole channel and all this branding around these video essays. So I had this website called Delve and I had a, that's what I called the YouTube channel and it had the logo and all this type of thing. Um, and the mission was to, um, was that idea of sort of making things fascinating, um, like you say there, but it had a sort of educational purpose. And the thing that I think is weird looking back is how that was kind of a way of trying to sort of protect myself, I think, from the you know, kind of external reactions and from the public, if, does that, if that makes sense, um, to sort of give what I was doing. All I really wanted to do, you see, was just kind of practice telling stories um, so I could get better at it. But that the idea of sort of going on the internet and saying, hi, I just made this video about the history of bananas um, <laughs> for no reason other than I quite wanted to make it. Here you go. That, to me, back then, terrified me. And so I created this thing around. I created this this kind of little fake company, you know, like sort of, you know, a little brand with a mission and whatever. And now it was almost as if to say, well, if it's educational and it's and people think it's part of a some kind of wider publishing thing, it won't be as scary. And and that's kind of what I, I realized as I sort of hear, hear those descriptions of myself back, that was kind of what was going through my head when I wrote them. 
I discovered you like many, many people, I'm guessing, through this video essay you made named, actually right now I'm blanking because in my, in my, in my head it's named the long term, but it, that might not be the right name. It had all sorts of names, yeah. The, the, the one about Leonardo de, um, da Vinci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you made this video essay pretty much when video essays were kicking off, I feel. And we were all, as content creators, we were all looking for content and we were looking into video essays. And, and I found your video because Kirby Ferguson from Everything is a Remix liked it on Vimeo, so it showed on my timeline and I clicked on it. I know it's not the work you love the most, and actually, it's, I, I think that's something I would like to talk with you about as well, because that's not the work you're the most proud of. And yet it's definitely the one that gave you the more uh, views and maybe you were on brain picking, I think. And I, I feel this work was a bit of a turning point for your career. Yeah. So that was the first, that little video essay about Leonardo da Vinci's creative journey. They, that was the first video essays that I made and this kind of concerted effort to make video essays. So before that, I was a, a freelance video journalist, actually. So I was sort of making a living either by sort of editing um, videos of people or doing some shooting. Um, I was doing writing as well. And I was sort of looking for a new project, like I said, you know, just a, a way to be more prolific in my practice of telling stories that was what I really wanted to do was like I, I want to get better at this storytelling all I'm doing at the moment is reading books about it and I kind of always felt that if you want to get good at something the best way to do it is to practice over and over and over again so it's sort of about trying to find a format for it that I could do regularly and I remember there were some of the rules that I sort of gave myself when I was coming up with this whole project was okay it's got to be something that you can make at least one a month I think I initially said although I, I've never been able to make one in a, in a single month more like one, one every two months um, it has to be something I can do for the most part by myself so it can happen quicker and it has to be something that I can do um, without it costing me more than, say, $100 per video um, in terms of the costs of footage or any of that, or music or any of that type of stuff. So they were the sort of rules. And I think it was that term, video essay, that really opened my mind as well, because I think you're right when you say that around that time, sort of 2013, going into 2014, the video essay as a format was was really starting to kind of bloom on Vimeo and YouTube, mostly kind of film criticism. And that's kind of mostly what it is today, isn't it? But um, some people were using it to kind of tell nonfiction stories in a different way. And I really love the term video essay back then because I knew I kind of wanted to start with nonfiction storytelling just because of my journalistic background. But every time I kind of thought in my head about a documentary, immediately all the kind of tropes and cliches of a documentary filled my brain you know like a talking head person you know an expert you know historian with a beard or you know Ken Burns zooms <laughs> into photographs and all that type of thing and then when I heard this I, this word video essay it kind of just switched a light on I was like actually if I imagine what I'm making is a video essay suddenly it's not a documentary it's something else and it can look and sound different and that was the, the the switch that flipped in my head that allowed me to kind of imagine this new type of thing so yeah so I, I think it was the sort of autumn of 2013 I kind of had that realization and I was really fascinated by creativity and art and the creative journey for very selfish reasons because I was kind of um, you know navigating it myself and also approaching 30 
and having some you know some thoughts and reflections about my life and career so far and so that's kind of where those kind of things all converged um, and I think I must have started making it in the autumn about this time yeah about October or November in 2013 and then I think I put it on the internet maybe in January of 2014 um, but the interesting thing actually with the long game I put those two videos up and they both sat there and then and no one watched them hmm I, I didn't no, know that no actually yeah they they were they were sat there unnoticed for about three or four months um, I decided though, I was quite excited about the video essay. So I decided that I would keep making them for at least one year. And only then after one year, would I make a decision about whether to keep doing it. So that really worked for me because even though those, you know, I, I think if I'd made those two videos and then no one had watched them, I, I probably would have just given up and said, oh, that didn't really work and tried something else. But I'd already kind of committed myself to doing another one. So I just kind of kept making them. And I think it was probably in the summer of that year, so maybe six months later, when they got noticed. And they got noticed because of Kirby Ferguson, like you said. He, I don't know how he saw them, but he he saw one, maybe because we follow each other on Twitter or something, I don't know. But he saw it, and then because he liked it, it got the attention of the Vimeo staff pick people. They saw it, they made it a staff pick, and then it went it went around from there. And yes, like you say, brain pickings mentioned it and Kotke featured it and it went sort of all over the place. And it still sort of pops up in lots of places today, which is really nice. It's very interesting because I actually, we never talked about how it started. And I always assumed that you knew Kirby Ferguson because, you know, I was like, Adam is making video essays. He's kind of making video essays. So you probably hang out in the same world. And knowing that you basically kept on working on your things while it was just on the internet waiting to be discovered by someone who had a bigger following is I think that's just already a very inspiring uh, information as far as I'm concerned yeah I mean uh, certainly Kirby was an inspiration because I'd I really liked everything as a remix and I think definitely his style and his approach inspired my video essays but no we hadn't met we hadn't chatted we weren't um you know sort of connected at that point the kind of interesting lesson for me about it though is maybe something we'll pick up later on but it's it, it kind of affected how i think about this idea of make what's that's how, that's how people phrase it people always sort of say you know make something good or make something great and people will the people will come and that seems to be a phrase that i remember seeing around a lot in the last 10 years. And I think people still sort of say it, you know, focus on making something good and people will come. And actually that's not really the truth of it. People might come eventually um, if you have to be patient, I suppose. But, um, you know, it's still, it, there was still, it, was, it still fascinates me actually that this, that the internet, there's this idea that um, the gatekeepers have all gone. You know, and then if you anyone can now make something and reach an audience of billions. And actually, that isn't really true. There are still the gatekeepers. You know, um, it is my work still pretty much lives and dies on whether um, it gets a Vimeo staff pick. You can see that in all of the videos I've put on Vimeo. Um, <clears throat> some of them have got become staff picks and got sent around the world. And then the others just haven't. And there's no 
and it's down to the people who work at Vimeo. I actually met them a few years ago. I popped into their office and met the team who are the staff pickers. Very nice guys. But it's just a few people sat at a desk and they just watch through stuff and it's on them, you know. And I think YouTube perhaps is slightly different in that you can, because there's no staff pick thing, you can sort of still build your own audience, but you still have to jump through a lot of hoops. Yeah. One of them being their very Facebook-like-ish algorithm, uh, where basically yes. it's all about the longer the people... I, I got to learn a little bit about it when I did my vlog, which is like the longer people are going to watch your video, the higher your chances of having your video pop in the sidebar column saying we recommend you this and that. So they're not Vimeo staff pick, but they're still these... They're still playing with your success uh, rate and, and, and you're, you're just... They need to pick you. Somebody needs to... With a bigger... The gatekeeper, the new gatekeeper needs to pick you, basically. Yeah, and I, I think I'd still prefer a Vimeo human being gatekeeper than an algorithmic gatekeeper. It's one of those fascinating things, isn't it, that you see because of the YouTube's algorithms and the, and the fact they change often as well, and people aren't told that they've changed. It sort of relies on creators noticing the ups and downs of their views. But I've, I, my understanding is that they changed maybe about a year ago to focus more on topical content that's that's by creators who upload something new every week with a kind of weekly consistency and those are the sort of creators that the algorithm rewards and it's interesting that the, you then see people changing what they make to satisfy the algorithm and suddenly it's like who are we making this for are we making it for humans are we making it for for software that's true, but I will argue that in my daily practice as a website owner and, you know, just creative researcher and all this stuff, I think that YouTube will give a creator more chances to be found over time than Vimeo. And the reason why is that as far as I'm concerned, Vimeo has the worst search platform I've ever seen. I actually... Yes, when, when discoverability. I, is oh, good, my is God. It? When I search for something... I always find gems on YouTube because their catalog is crazy, but also because their search bar is very good. If I type keywords on Vimeo, nine times out of 10, nothing comes out. And it's just a, a big disappointment. You feel like there's 50 videos on the Vimeo platform and you like pass the Vimeo staff peak, which is why maybe you're uploading on both platforms. I don't know, but pass the Vimeo staff peak. I feel you will not get discovered on Vimeo if Vimeo doesn't pick you, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that puts a real limit on, you know, you think about the hundreds of hours. It's not obviously as much as, YouTube, but there must be thousands of hours of stuff being uploaded every hour onto Vimeo. And lots of them are by very hardworking and talented filmmakers. And you're right, like it's how much space is there? How many staff picks are there a week? There's maybe 10 or something. And I don't know actually how many there are. So I agree. Yeah, the discoverability on Vimeo is, is, a, is not as good as YouTube. To come back to your journey that is going to lead you to your big creative project we're going to talk about, between the moment your first essays got picked, you had already built some essays and you decided to continue for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about how this movement of growing your audience or maybe learning how to grow your audience made you evolve as a video artist, you know, to become closer to the person you are today? What were the consequences chronologically and how did you arrive to that point? Sure. So I released those first two videos um, and then I released a third one. Um, in the spring of 2014, 
Um, that was about Claude Shannon, I think, about binary, a very another kind of bizarre story. And I just had I just found loads of cool little stories I really wanted to tell and I was excited about telling. And that was sort of my that's what directed me that year. And in fact, that is still what directs me. I, I'm actually not I'm going to put my hands up and say I'm I'm if I've learned anything about myself is that I'm not good at or particularly driven by the marketing side of all of this. And I definitely could have made smarter, you know, if if it was, if the goal was building a big audience, um, I could have made smarter decisions. The type of videos I made and the things I made videos about and the things and the titles I even gave the videos and the way I designed the thumbnails and all of those types of things. Um, but actually I was always just much more, led by the work itself. Video essays for the first couple of years really fascinated me because there was so much to learn about how to tell these stories. And so I, you know, I chose the stories almost for kind of form reasons rather than content reasons. So um, I did a video about the start of the first world war. I think that was the fourth video I made. And I didn't tell that because I, I thought people wanted a video about the start of world war one. I. I just had it in my head. I really wanted to, to try telling a story backwards, you know, in a sort of memento way or a Wes Anderson film, the Grand Budapest Hotel had just come out. And there was a nice kind of accordion chronology and that sort of went forward and backwards in time. And I remember coming out of the cinema and thinking, oh, that'd be cool to see something like that in a video essay. So I made this thing about the First World War. And again, yeah, it was not made for audience reasons. I just kind of was always directed by my interests. So that got me through the first year to the end of 2014. By then I, I'd been approached by Fusion, who were a new kind of BuzzFeed type platform and that, that had just been started up by with money from Disney. And I think basically Disney had tried to buy BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed had said no. And so Disney said, well, if we can't own BuzzFeed, we'll try and make our own BuzzFeed. And then a couple of other deals and it ended up sort of being a having a, a being and still is, I think, a brand for uh, Latino Americans that's that's doing quite well. And they'd hired loads of really talented editors and people and some of whom kind of found me through, I think, my video essays because they were being shared around quite a lot at that point. Um, and so in 2015, I kind of joined them, still working from Paris and working remotely, but making my own, yeah, pretty much having my own direction in the, in the, the essays I made. But I think I made five films for them through 2015 and I had um, Anna Holmes as my editor who's who had previously founded Jezebel and is now working on Topic um, which is a, a new publication that's really interesting um, and so she was my editor there and I had yeah quite a good year again just I did five more essays these were a bit more audience focused because Fusion wanted them obviously to go viral so they were kind of more populist topics like distraction and the universal basic income and things like that but it was great I was getting paid actually getting paid money to make these video essays that I was probably going to make on my own for free. This money was enough for you to make a full-time living or you still had to, did you still have to work on the side? No, that pretty much, uh, I mean, I got paid per film. So I wasn't on a retainer or anything like that. I didn't have a regular income, but I pretty much worked full-time on those videos throughout that year and uh, my living costs were quite cheap actually so I was able to sort of um, be comfortable that year which was great and it was the first time yeah that I'd pretty much ever been able to make just make my own my own creative 
project as my actual job that had never happened before and so that was great um looking back um in the end i it, i think we didn't continue it for a second year there was a whole change of leadership in the company and everything so by the end of 2015 that project ended and it was around that time in fact yes that's that was when i started the patreon um i think that was september of 2015 that was my only other project that year was to start a patreon page um and i remember wanting to do it a lot earlier but sort of being slightly frustrated because i had these other essays that i'd been contracted <laughs> to do for someone else i'm a patron of your patrons i encourage other people becoming your patron if if you are continuing at least because you are very generous in sharing your process and very honest about it and i think it's very interesting i actually because you wrote an article named on art and money and ultimately i, I feel This is the whole uh, battle we have, right? We try to create things that we feel very passionate about, but most likely won't bring money. Or as soon as we start thinking about how to bring money while making them, it influences our decisions. And Patreon, I mean, I, I definitely want to discuss about Patreon because it's, it's this platform, for those who don't know, that presents itself as an option for artists, any type of creators, to... Uh, get regular support as opposed to, uh, let's say, a crowdfunding uh, platform. Instead of you giving money just for one video essay, we give you money on a regular basis so you can, you know, project yourself, sustain, have a sustainable life, maybe. I mean, that's rarely the case, actually, but, you know, <laughs> but the idea, let's say. And back then, when you opened the Patreon platform, you had the choice between asking people to support you on a monthly basis and ask people to support you on a, a per-project basis. And you, you chose... And I, actually, when I started my own Patreon, I chose the latter as well, which is only charging people when you produce something. But in a way, I feel this is not... I, I don't believe that this is what people should pick if they are going to open a Patreon. What, what, what are your feelings about... Uh, how you launch your patron? I feel you're someone who uh, doesn't uh, take people's money lightly. So I'm sure you went through a whole process of thinking about it and making it. So would you talk, tell us a little bit more about your journey starting your Patreon? Yes, absolutely. Well, to answer your first question, um, yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, and I chose poorly, uh, I think, in that big decision. Um, and the reason I, I, I chose, yeah, like you say, to take money on a per video basis and the reason was that my videos often take a couple of months to make so i don't release i i don't really have the regularity of something new every month and i definitely the, that's still not a reason to go for that particular model but the reason i did choose that model was because i like you say i don't take lightly the idea of of um taking people's money um, or asking for people's money um and certainly back then when i started you know i was actually quite uncomfortable about it because it that's a big step to say to go from saying, hi, uh, I made this thing, I made this video about bananas just because I felt like it and I hope you like it. And um, to then saying, hi, I, I've made this video and I would like some money for it. Or, you know, would you give some money for it? It's another step of towards vulnerability. And for me, this whole journey, if there's an arc for me in the last three or four years of doing this, it's this, it's 
that journey towards into vulnerability, like step by step removing the protections and step by step putting my head further above the parapet and stepping further into the ring for better or worse, you know. And so I definitely felt slightly uneasy. Um, <clears throat> I spent a long time preparing the Patreon page. I think I probably spent about two months planning it. I did lots of research. I looked at lots of other Patreon creators um, who do similar stuff. And I looked at things like, you know, uh, what levels were they, were they giving their rewards at? What type of rewards were they doing? How frequently were they posting? Um, trying to sort of find some patterns that would help kind of inform my decisions. And I guess, yeah, I wanted to be really generous with the rewards because I kind of wanted people to feel like it was going to be worth their money. So I kind of came up with quite a few different rewards things like uh, making us creating a sort of behind the scenes director's commentary of each video afterwards so sort of making another video on top of the main video um, where I sort of narrate my kind of creative decisions um, there's an option for people to see a draft cut of the video and, and give feedback that will help inform the final cut and things like that what happened though interestingly though I, I mean Patreon started off great I think my I had a re had some really good support from people in the, the, the way more than I thought I was going to have I think in the first few months so I think when I released my first video I think I had I don't know what it was maybe 700 or 800 dollars of pledges before our first video which was great but then what I found though was that I then changed in at the start of 2016 when I was back working for myself I changed some of my rewards to I tried to make them even better I had another level where you could where I would write a kind of essay about storytelling. And I had another one, I can't know what it was now, there's one more thing. But I, I actually found that was a step too far because it turned it from, um, or it turned it into a much more straightforward transaction. So it was, you give me $10 and I'll give you this thing in exchange. And I actually found that made me really uncomfortable. Suddenly the magic had gone. And for me, there is a magic with Patreon, which is the fact that people, first of all, don't have to support you in order to get any of the good stuff. Like my videos are still up there for free without adverts, although, you know, on YouTube, regardless of whether you support me or not. And so people support. It's a gift, in a sense, is what people do. And they, it's not a transaction. It's not an exchange. It's a gift. And then what you're making is also a gift. And it's a gift you give freely to everyone regardless of whether they pay you or not, I suppose. Otherwise, it's not a gift. And so there was some magic there in these two groups exchanging a gift. And that, for me, is the thing I, I lost when I, when I took it too far with the levels of the rewards. Uh, it became too much like a shop almost. And I felt like if I don't deliver this thing, this reward, then these people are going to be disappointed. And actually, you don't want it to be like that because then it's not, it's not fun anymore. It's not art anymore. It's a, it's a business which is not really what I wanted to do. Yeah, which is partly one of the reasons I feel the first thing per creation is not a good idea because you get... We just did it for three months and we never released anything during this time because it paralyzes you. Because what if people feel like this is not worth the money I'm giving you? This is like at least a monthly payment. There's like, you know, you know what's what's in it for you and you know this is going to fall every month no matter what what's happening. I also feel it's very hard to quantify the rewards you're giving to people unless you go just as you did like it becomes a homework almost where you have to produce to give something and, and it's 
it's it's a little bit creativity inhibiting. Yeah, it is because it it um it, it puts a quantity on on the work as well, and so you know you end up. I mean, you know, as if the tyranny of the the number of views your video has got, or the number of readers your newsletter or got, or the number of Twitter followers you have isn't enough. Then suddenly there's also another number, which is how much is your Patreon support, and is it higher than it was last month? Um, and if not, why not? Um, and those things I think are kind of inhibiting. And so I think if if anyone is listening to this and thinking of starting a Patreon uh, campaign, definitely do it because it's a really good way to have a close interaction with the people who love what you do the most. And for me, that was kind of what I wanted more than the money was to to answer some questions. Number one, who are the people who like my work more than anyone else, the real hardcore fans? And two, where are they? And three, how can I talk just to them and do extra stuff just for them? Because I don't really like the idea of sort of I think I like to think we're kind of past the broadcast age of sort of just trying to make something that pleases everyone. And actually, the, there's a real beauty and power in building your own small audience and making stuff that delights them and not caring about anyone else. And I think Patreon has actually got better at that. That's something Patreon is very good at now. Um, you know, in terms of communicating with your fans, you can you can send stuff that only reaches some people. You can have stuff that reaches them for a short period and then goes to everyone. There's lots of flexibility there. So I think it is the best way at the moment to, to find, to identify the people who love you more than anyone else, i.e. they're willing to put their money and then to do extra stuff for them. That's cool. But you've got to have an attitude right from the start that this isn't a transaction this isn't an exchange it's a gift and and that way hopefully you feel more relaxed about whether you make something or not you know because you just kind of you know i'm paranoid all the time that that the people are my supporters on patreon are, are are sitting there going this is not worth my money but actually i sometimes get nice messages from from people saying actually i haven't really liked what you're making at the moment but i i'm still really enjoy supporting you and and your work and um that's what you want is is the people who sort of who who are going to forgive you for making something that either they don't like specifically or maybe isn't even as good because that's the thing like you know in your journey as an artist you you have to part of the hard work is being prepared to make something bad either bad or that doesn't find its audience which are two different things sometimes it's very objective it's bad technically or whatever and sometimes it's not loved which is a little bit different right and actually i think that's that's a good way to 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 bridge to to your biggest project to date if i'm not mistaken in december 2016 a year and a half ago you made an announcement and you said I had two options for 2017, either scale up or double down. What I mean by that is really asking the hard questions about what I am on my own as an artist, really capable of making. What does self-expression for me look like? And that's much longer and lonelier and uncertain road. But I realized in the end that that's the path I wanted to take. So basically what you did is that you told us, your patrons, that you were going to make even less videos in 2017, but you were going to tackle a bigger project where you would be more vulnerable and take more risks. And this project was, is, 
parallax. Of course, pattern is going to uh, keep on popping uh, within parallax and everything we've talked about was this whole introduction on how you landed on working on this big project that is almost over. Parallax is not a regular video essay, so can you tell us what it is and how you arrived at this idea of making this project? Yes, absolutely. So um, the, the kind of logline, I suppose, for Parallax is it's a documentary or a series of video essays, I suppose, about life on Earth but narrated by aliens, like Ken Burns in space or David Attenborough in space was how I sort of jokingly kind of described it when I was, you know, sort of mentioning it to friends and, um, and people around. And it came from basically by the time, so when we, when we left my journey a few minutes ago and I, was, and I was just starting on Patreon, I made three videos at the start of 2016, which were all, you know, more challenging and, um, and actually work I was quite proud of. I did a video about Van Gogh. I did one about the refugee crisis and one uh, about the Peter Principle. But I w was already by that point finding myself banging up against the ceiling of the video essay format. So this format that had really excited me the end of 2013, by 2016, I'd felt, first of all, that I'd figured out a lot of the questions that I had set out to kind of figure out or I'd figured out the answers rather to the questions I had at the start about how to how do you take a complex topic and turn it into a compelling story and I'd figured out a lot of the visual stuff but I was just finding that actually yeah it had these kind of restrictions that I was getting uncomfortable with and one of them and the main one is this idea this kind of format of the whole video essay which is the kind of all-seeing, all-knowing narrator. And it's something that annoys me, uh, partly in my own work, but in all the other video essays that I see around. Because you have someone who's basically gone and, on Wikipedia and JSTOR or whatever, and they've done some research. And then if they're half good at writing a, a script and reading it out loud, they sound very authoritative about what they're talking about. And often, you know, there's no evidence that they are. And it's just this sense of, it was a, uh, something I didn't like about the essays I was making as well, as well as that, was also you end up, in order to sound authoritative, you, you take the subject and you simplify it. And when you have this, this one all-seeing narrator, there's room for only one perspective or one answer to the question. And it's life is like this. And this is this is the thing. This is what I'm saying. I um, mean, actually, the problem is, is life isn't that simple. And uh, and the reality and truth is a lot more complicated. And I was worried that I was I was just simplifying things for the sake of simplifying them um, and maybe not making things better. So one of the things that, that led me on to thinking about was what are some ways to break out of that? How to get out of the all seeing uh, narrator and I thought a lot about things like an unreliable narrator. And I actually tried this several, I had several failed attempts across over the couple of years I was doing this to do an essay with a, an unreliable narrator. What do you mean by un unreliable? So an unreliable narrator is a fiction, a fictional device. So it's where you have a narrator who is telling you the story, but they get things wrong you know their memories blurred or they were drinking at the time or they've got a motivation they're trying to make you think a certain person is good or bad um, or they're trying to protect themselves all those kind of interesting things and 
So I started thinking about that, you know, can that work in nonfiction? Is that even allowed? Um, and I still haven't quite answered that question, but that sort of led me on to an idea of like, what about a fictional, at least a fictional narrator? Um, and that's kind of where this idea emerged from, is what what would, um, you know, some aliens who are watching us from afar, what the hell would they make of our, the way we are and the way we behave? Um and the, the things that we're doing the idea first i mean i had the idea many years ago um in a different form long before i was doing these video essays but i remember doing some kind of climate change talks and that they were failing um really kind of going you know if there are some aliens out there they're going to think we're really fucking stupid <laughs> for you know continuing to do this thing that we know is bad and that's where that idea first came and it combined with all this narrative stuff i was thinking of and solidified into this idea of like okay what about doing some video essays but the narrator is not real it's a fictional narrator um and that really excited me because it was like okay that's th this is a chance to really mess with the form of what and people's expectations of what a video essay is and to try and break the rules and see what happens so that's where that kind of came from and it developed into a really interesting idea in the end because when you have fictional narrator especially with you know an alien it was possible to have them also misinterpret things that they're seeing and so you have this interesting thing where as you watch the video you're hearing a narrator who sounds authoritative and yet what they're what they're saying is true is either kind of contradicted by the pictures or just contradicted by our knowledge. And so you have this other perspective that you're kind of forced to consider, even though, you know, it's not true. And so things like that really kind of got me excited about the project when I when I decided to decided to do it. I love the fact that you're always going for a harder and bigger and more ambitious project. And, and just say, hearing about it, I, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people are going to get curious about because this is, this is ambitious right here. And basically, you, you made this hard choice of saying, I'm not going to do anything right now. I mean, I don't know what you were doing at the same time to, to earn uh, money to make a living because basically you had this possibility to make... To have at least, I don't know, $700, $800, $1,000 per thing if you were to create once a month. And you decided, no, I'm not going to use this money. I'm just going to work on something bigger. So what were you doing at the same time to make sure you had a roof over your head? <laughs> and, and just tell us first what, what you were doing to make a living at the same time. And then I'll ask my other question. Sure. Yeah. So um, I started work on Parallax. I committed to it. Um, in September of 2016, I had I'd taken the summer, I'd finished my last video essay about the Peter Principle and I'd kind of uh, lost my kind of motivation for a bit and I needed to do a rethink and that led me to Parallax. So I committed to that in the September and then at the exact same time, my girlfriend and I left Paris and moved to the UK and settled in uh, Brighton, a lovely little seaside town. And I got lucky. I have a friend who runs a tech website. And so I took a part time job as a video producer with him. He was expanding his video output. And I say I was lucky because we were able to kind of hash a deal where I worked for him three days a week in London. And then I would have two days a week where I would be doing my own thing. And those two days were my parallax days. And we did this for, for about eight months, I think, up until about May of this year, May of 2017. And it just about covered my my outgoings. So I was able to kind of pay my bills. I had to make some cutbacks here and there to, to make it work. But um, yes, it gave me two days a week 
to just develop parallax and it was great because I didn't have to worry about money. I could separate the art and separate the money and then just be as ambitious as I wanted to be on Parallax. So I spent a good, so September until about February was just development. I was just researching and reading books and, you know, writing treatments and then start to write a script and all this type of thing. So that, that worked out really well. So you're a very patient man. This is something that I admire with you because I'm not patient at all. So you spend four months, two full days per week working on the research for Parallax. And I'm going to ask you to make a little effort of imagination because you know the end of this story. But back then, did you think about uh, anything in terms of strategy for release or is this something you've always decided not to take into account besides you know the usuals of uh, Vimeo uploading on Vimeo on YouTube and the Patreon were you also spending time on this and what did you have in mind as how it would unfold well I mean I guess the thing that that every we all have as we start a project is it appears so amazing in our imagination, in our head, when we imagine this thing, that I was, you're sort of driven by the belief that people will find it as amazing as you do <laughs> once you've made it. And so, you know, my my thought was, oh, well, as soon as this goes out, people are going to love this. Like, this is so this is so cool, this idea, you know, people, there's nothing like it on the, no one's done this before. People are going to be, have their minds blown. So you sort of, so I was very excited. Um, and being patient was difficult because I wanted this, I wanted to get this kind of idea out. Um, I mean, I, my strategy was, I, I mean, I don't, I didn't give it that much thought. I was far more interested in the, in the making of it and the, and the creative challenges of the, of actually making the videos. My plan was to fund each one with Patreon. So that was, that was the main strategizing was I rather than doing this in one long thing, which is probably how it's best consumed actually in one go, I will release it in episodes and charge my supporters on Patreon per episode. And I thought, well, I'll give them the first one of the episode for free at the beginning. And then after that, sort of, you know, I'd charge per episode. And so I was able to have a budget. I could look at my Patreon figure, which by then was up to about $1,500 per video. And I could say, right, that's my budget for each video is $1,500, which is pretty great, actually, to have a completely new idea, a risky idea. Okay, no, of course, it's not going to pay me for my time or my bills or anything, but it can cover the cost of, you know, the stock footage that I might need to use, the, you know, music that I might need to use. In the end, I actually had enough that I thought I can actually hire a composer. So I um, have collaborated with Uh, a great musician called Dale Nichols, who's created an, an original music composition for the series. And then I also was able to hire an actor to, to do the voice of the aliens rather than it being my voice. Two things which have definitely elevated the end result without a doubt. And so I was able to invest in those things because I knew that there would be that money coming in. So in that sense, you know, having that support on Patreon works really well because you get a, you you can almost calculate a budget for your episode. So that was the plan basically and release them every six weeks throughout the year. And, you know, my, my, my anticipation was that 
if the support on Patreon didn't stay the same, it would go up. Like this would find a new audience and there'd be new people who'd sign up and support me. You know, in my head, it was going to be a great success. <laughs> I mean, that's what we always uh, have to believe, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Exactly. Um, you released episodes one and two in May, right, of this year? That's right, yeah, in May 2017. So you started, you committed to Parallax in your head in September of 2016. You announced it in, 2000, in December of 2016, and then six more, five more months passed. And during those five months, you just worked on episodes one and two. And at that point, you shared it with us. Yes, pretty much. I actually, um, pretty much all of the, the end of 2016, it was reading books. It was watching films. Um, I was doing lots of research into xenology, which is the study of alien life and trying to get an idea of what the, how you, how do you talk about the challenges talk? It was going to be, how do I talk about humans in a way that makes them sound alien. And so it was trying to use the scientific language a scientific observer might use to make us sound more alien to ourselves. So there's all that sort of stuff. And then just doing lots of thinking and writing and like, what is the, what is this going to be about? What is this series? What is this going to end up saying? And the difficulty was in the end that actually, and this comes out in the work, definitely. I, you know, I think maybe when I started it, I imagined it being quite an inspiring story i imagine there being a sort of a great kind of celebration of humans as artists and and you know art and play as things that only humans can do and stuff like that but then when i just when i committed to doing it brexit had happened and then when i was re researching it donald trump got elected and just 2016 just ended as a year of just sort of couldn't help but leave you feeling pessimistic What I realized was like, I realized that the story, I cracked the story when I realized that there was a great opportunity to have an ironic, with this fictional narrator, as I mentioned, you know, they, they miss it, they might misinterpret some of the things that they see on earth and get, get wrong about what they actually are. You know, they might, for example, look at cars and, and assume that they're living organisms and, and things like that. But then I realized there was actually a great opportunity to have some dramatic irony going on where the aliens represent almost the worst of us and essentially whatever they think is good is actually what's bad if that makes sense so what happens throughout the series is they mistake corporations as being the kind of big sentient beings who live on earth and humans who they call employees are the sort of subservient species and they think this is brilliant So the audience is supposed to go, oh, God, that's terrible. You know, like, isn't uh, capitalism and, and corporations, we let them control our lives too much. Meanwhile, what they're seeing is these aliens going, isn't this amazing? These corporations are a fantastic advanced species. And the way they collaborate with the employees is wonderful. And so in each episode, you know, the, the music is always really, in, you know, over the top inspiring. And Dale Nichols has done a great job of kind of composing this Carl Sagan cosmos-like score that would go underneath Carl Sagan saying something really wonderful and wistful and optimistic about the humanity's exploration of space and in fact we're we're seeing it over the opposite and so what happened by the end of 2016 was I realized this is actually kind of going to be more of a, a negative quite a depressing story possibly but balanced by that irony so you're not watching a thing where it's like life on earth is very sad and tragic you're seeing it in a very in the opposite in a very optimistic way and when I when I came up with that I was like that's 
that's how this series is going to play out. So I'd had that by the end of the year. And then I took a break over Christmas. And then January, I knew what I wanted to do. That's when I started the story design. And I have this very long process that I've sort of developed doing these essays of how I build a story, first of all, looking at it from, you know, the the, the global level, and then breaking it right down into scenes. And I did all of that for all six episodes. And I wrote a script, a first draft script for every episode. So I knew what was going to happen in each episode by the end of January. And then, yeah, February, March, April were producing, like you say, the first two episodes on their own. You have a very, very specific and precise take on how you create. For me, it's it's very interesting because your creative process feels so controlled to me. Uh, And I don't say that in a bad way, actually. It's it's just that I am less in control, I feel, about the whole journey. And and from the get-go, I noticed that you really break it down before producing before entering the production moment you you have it all mapped out that's right yeah and and in, you know this goes right back to the beginning when i started doing these video essays and where our conversation started you know the the whole point at the beginning was i really wanted to get better at the the storytelling part of it about how do i design these stories that are going to be interesting and full of lots of interesting twists and turns and big climaxes and no matter what the subject was and so for me, yeah, the process has always been about, has been about that word control. It's like, how can I, can I get feeling control of the process from the beginning? And definitely at the start, I never did. I would just barrel into it. I'd write scripts and they'd be awful. And then I'd change and I'd hate myself and I'd start again. And then I sort of had this, I sort of read some stuff and, and learned about how you kind of create a one page outline. And so I did that and that gave me a bit more control, but then I lost it as I was getting into the scenes. And so I then started scene design and that gave me a bit more control and sort of just practicing, practicing that and honing that over the last few years. Yeah, I do have a concerted process now that I do, that probably does take maybe about two or three weeks to do. And actually, I've, I've just, uh, as we speak, have just finished that exact process for a project I'm doing with the New York Times. And that was exactly the same. Like I had, that's probably the most in control I've ever felt in a story. And so I, I'm sort of quite happy to have found this story design process. That said, I think there is such a thing as too much control. And I think, I think actually, you know, in nonfiction, it's probably fine. But what I've realized is that I think my work might take me into fiction next. And one of the things that excites me about it is actually letting go of the control, at least for some of it, and letting characters come alive and dictate what they do rather than trying to come up with a very nice tidy story design and then making the characters walk through it so I I think there is probably a balance between you sort of want to you want to be able to play with fire but also in a controlled way yeah (laughs) Um, you know there's got to be a risk of getting burnt basically also Um, if it's too controlled it's too sterile when you enter this process like right now let's say what you've done for the New York Times I don't know what it is but maybe you'll tell us later about it for you is the satisfaction is the joy coming from the fact that you're following through the motions you've created for the machine to work at the end or do you feel even within this 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 control of the process you still have space for 
uh, surprise? Like, is there something that came up uh, within Parallax or, you know, the, the latest project you've done that uh, kind of derailed the process in a way? Yeah, that's a good question. To answer, your, what, answer the first part of the question, yes, there is a satisfaction in following the process in that there's a discipline to it that really appeals to me. I'm Of all the kind of great writers about storytelling, you know, whether it's Robert McKee or Sid Field or whatever, my favourite is David Mamet, and in particular his book on directing film. It's a really short book. It's like 110 pages. And it's only really got one message, which is, guys, it's not that hard. Just figure out who is the character, what do they want, and then how do they, what is the logic, what is the next logical step for them to take to get that thing and there's something about the about the very simple discipline there that I always find myself kind of striving for and it involves a lot of hard kind of brain work like my I, my head hurts when I'm doing the story design stuff you know I'm sort of looking at I do it on paper and I've got these felt tips and I'm drawing out the steps of a scene and I'm trying to figure out where it all goes and sometimes yeah I'm like how does that fit that doesn't fit how do I make that fit is that what's the what is the where's this scene going that for me is part of the joy is is that's the 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 nuts and gritty bolts of the storytelling there the plotting I was always drawn to structure when I started this um, I think like a lot of people are when they when they sort of start their storytelling journey is the first thing you want to figure out is how story structure works And then you think that's everything. You're like, if I can just figure out the structure of a story, how to structure stories well, then I can tell amazing stories. And then eventually you realize, actually, it's a, about a lot more than that. But definitely that was what drew, I was one of those people and I, that drew me to it definitely at the start. And so, yeah, that is that is kind of the joy. But at the same time, yeah, there has to be room for those kind of unexpected things that come up. So I try not to do the story design too early. So in, with Parallax, I started that work in January of 2017. But that was after those few months of research and just loads of writing where literally the story could have gone anyway. I was really open to different directions that the story might take. I really didn't think about structuring it until a good maybe four months into the process. And so by then I'd kind of really explored it enough that I felt confident that in, in kind of starting to, to screw it down. But for me, also just in nonfiction, it's just a really helpful way in trying to reveal information in interesting and unexpected ways or dramatic ways. I think that's the thing that uh, in the educational kind of video world, if you like, the video essays kind of fit into that category there of sort of educational videos. And the the, the emphasis is always on, you know, it feels like it, people just try and deliver the information like an encyclopedia would. So sort of this this person was born here and first they did this and then they did this and then this happened and then they did this. And just sort of revealing the information just very linear in a very linear way and the great thing about the story design with nonfiction is it allows you to it gives you a, a, a framework to actually play with the order in which you reveal information and come up with quite creative little scenes that build up to an interesting reveal and deliver information in a more unexpected way. I like this this uh, stage. Actually, listening to you, I realize that that's probably what we're all doing. It's just that you're doing it with more time space, maybe, for research, and then your process is very structured. But yeah, definitely, I see what you mean about playing with the idea, and once you know what you want to do, just 
putting your skills to craft it and make it happen. Let's get back to the parallax timeline, which is you shared episode one and two in May of uh, this year, so a few, few months ago, six months ago, I guess. Yeah. And I remember you reached out to me to let me know. I shared it uh, on the newsletter and you shared it on Patreon and, you know, the usual venues. And at the same time you, you were sharing it and trying to gather some interest, you were also working on episode three. So I, I think at this point we enter an interesting zone of the story, which is probably something you'd like to expand uh, on, which is it didn't get staff picked, Vimeo staff picked, as we just talked about earlier, and uh, which means that even though you got a, a, a nice number, certainly more views than I ever got for anything I've ever done, which is seven... Back then you said 17,000 views when you combine all the platforms. Maybe now, now probably it's higher. But it's not enough, let's say, to make uh, a big splash. The big splash might happen tomorrow, we don't know, as, as your first video essays proved. But so at that point you have launched the first chapter of something you've been working on for months and you still have months of work to come <laughs> which, which is which is where i find it very interesting because this is where we are tested as creatives you don't get the 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 response you hope for which is what happens mm -hmm. most of the time and yet you still committed to something that requires you to keep faith so can you tell us more about this journey from that point on? Did it influence how you created the rest of the content? And, you know, just I'm interested in learning more about the journey from after the release of the first two episodes until now. Sure. So uh, definitely the something that I find over and over again, not just with Parallax, but with all of my work, is that the release of a piece of work on the internet is, to, for me anyway, always a huge disappointment, um, regardless of how it goes. Because, you know, you, yeah, you just put obviously everything into this thing and your imagination gets very excited about the idea and how people might receive it. And of course, it's always going to be disappointing, I think, unless, you know, you have things in place or you've already got a big audience or you know all, all that sort of stuff but for me it's almost like the almost you know like when you um when you organize a party uh, like a house party or something or an apro and you know in the in the few hours before the, the party starts you know a couple of people drop out and then you entertain this paranoia that no one's going to come to your party. And putting stuff on the internet is that scenario, except no one does come to the party. <laughs> um, and you have that that feeling, that sort of, yeah, that kind of crushing disappointment, like, oh, really, that's that's all that happened was, yeah, the, the sort of people I expected to see it have seen it. No one's shared it. You know, no one's picked up on it. And um, it's always, yeah, I always just find it. It's the, it's always the bit where I'm just like, what, what, why? It's now not fun. I was really enjoying it till the bit where it goes out. And um, yeah, that hasn't really, that's never changed. That's been the same since I started doing these things. And so I remember um, having some expectations that it might staff pick because I'm on their radar and because it's an interesting idea, but that didn't happen. And uh, I sent it around to various people. I remember actually one of the changes I'd made, I had decided in the development phase that I had had enough of YouTube. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of, although we has some benefits and it's better at some things, as we said earlier, I'm, 
I, I think it's got a lot of problems. Um, I think it's always felt like it was too kind of focused on popularity and this sort of thing. And I, and I always knew my work didn't really belong there. And so I was like, actually, no, with Parallax, I'm going to screw YouTube. This is going to be Vimeo only. Because I was kind of like, actually, do you know what? People on Vimeo, if I'm going to get any comments, they'll at least kind of be considered comments, you know, maybe from other filmmakers. YouTube, it's going to be some idiots who don't understand the idea. There'll just be loads of abuse and I can do without that. I remember I then released episodes one and two on Vimeo only and I released them to the patrons and they got some quite nice response from people on Patreon initially, I think, because it was different and new. But then, yeah, but it just wasn't, it just didn't, it, it kind of fizzled out very, very quickly. And I can't remember what it was. I think something happened. I think there was a specific moment, but I can't remember what it, what it was now. But I had a day when I was just really blue about it. And I went down to a walk on the beach and I was just like, yeah, this is, that didn't really work. But then I was like, Do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to just stick it on YouTube anyway, because I'm desperate for some attention <laughs> for my work. So I kind of broke and put it on YouTube. Um, and actually, bizarrely, YouTube, the people on YouTube have responded to it way better than people on Vimeo. Some, you know, really interesting comments. It started some really interesting discussions from people. And it's and so I'm glad I did that in the end. Um, that was the one change. But in terms of, yeah, then there's the motivation. That's always hard because before, you know, with the with the video essays where I just make one video and one thing and then change the subject, then it's got a bit easier because you can kind of say, well, I did it. I did complete it. You know, the reaction is the reaction. I can't do anything about that. Now let's do something new, brand new this one's going to be amazing exciting exciting and then here actually yeah in a series you've got to you've got to dig deep to find that motivation of i've actually got to keep doing this i actually found it quite I, i'm i'm surprised in myself i mean when you said earlier that i'm a patient person i'm very surprised to discover that in myself as well this patience is new for me a, a year ago two years ago i could not have done parallax i would have really struggled with the with the motivation and the momentum but maybe i'm just old enough now or just i was just ready for it was the right time but i've not struggled with that this year i absolutely committed to seeing it through to the end regardless of what happened and the other thing as well was that i was i was actually excited about what i was going to do in the future episodes i had some cool reveals and some cool developments that I thought people were going to really like. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe people didn't like episodes one and two, but I really like episode three. And so that also helped. So I didn't find motivation too much of a problem. I went through, I then made episodes three and four. I make them in batches of two just to save some money on the on the voiceover recording because it is quite expensive. So I have to sort of record with the actor, Jennifer, um, the two episodes at once. Otherwise, the studio time gets very expensive. What it then started sort of go downhill a bit. I in when was it mid-july i then released episode three and i then um went away for a week to the states on a kind of little vacation with some friends and that one didn't that one got some kind of negative feedback it it, it also didn't do particularly well but it but the the feedback it did get was was there was some kind of quite strong negative stuff about it um in the comments and things and so that was quite difficult to deal with and then but i sort of um plowed through august and got episode four done and and so yeah it's it's it, what i was finding what i am finding is that it's not you know people aren't sort of following it through the the through each ep as each episode comes out it gets fewer viewers fewer views than the previous one so it's sort of not building anything it's 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 doing the opposite and the other thing that's been, I don't mind talking about, that's been 
an unexpected sort of disappointment is that the support on Patreon, rather than staying the same or going up, which was what I had anticipated, it did the opposite. Um, and actually, my number of my, the amount of money I get on Patreon per video has actually fallen by about a half to a half of what it was when I started. So at the, the first episode, there was fifteen hundred dollars, but now it's down. It's, it's less than than eight hundred now. I think. So not only have the general public not been excited about it, some of who I thought were my biggest, most hardcore fans have also said, no, nope, we're out, we're off. And that's been, that was hard. That was something I, I didn't expect. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, you mentioned that when, when, uh, when we were talking about talking together and recording this episode. And this is one of the things I love, actually, that you are willing to talk about that and mention that because this is happening to everybody. As far as I'm concerned, from what I know, if you start paying attention to numbers, you realize that numbers are heart crushing. I see people with huge followings putting videos online and they have 1,000 views. For me, 1,000 views is actually good because I don't have big followers. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to get high numbers on videos and, and, and Patreon can be crushing as well because you are going to lose people and some and, and it's not always easy to understand if you're losing them just it might be money it might be because they don't like your stuff you don't know why most of the times but it's hard to see people leaving the platform and stop following you well actually you patreon does let you know why people have left um which is really interesting that you're actually able to see through the dashboard of the site when someone leaves they're given the chance to fill in a questionnaire like why why have you stopped supporting this person and then there's a few check boxes a few kind of pre-written options like yes i i, I only intended to support for a limited time uh, my financial situation has changed the creator isn't as engaging as i expected i think are three that i see quite a lot a lot most of them are in fairness it's people who who are having a tough year and just sort of can't afford to keep supporting other people i think don't like the project i think a lot of people we know supported um and this is kind of a problem with a difficulty of building an audience when you're an artist is that actually you know you're you can't promise your work is going to remain consistent either in quality or in the the thing that it's about and for and for me you know my artistic journey demanded that i i take this more challenging path it was what i felt i needed to do and yeah i think a lot of people were like well hang on i i gave you money because i i want more inspiring films about artists that make me feel good about myself or you know whatever it is and um people were disappointed i wasn't doing that anymore and that's fair enough. And so, yeah, there, you, you can actually find, you can actually see what the reasons are. And then some people leave comments. I got, I did get one where someone was like, you know, I'm, I was a fan of your early stuff, but this is like, the story's really bad and it's only got a few interesting ideas and stuff like that. And so sometimes you don't even, you don't even want to read. Wow, <laughs> what, yeah. But that's part of it. You know, your work has to interact with, um, that is the point, I suppose, is you, it, it's not a thing until it's out there you know, interacting with the audience. And I think, you know, if the, if I, you know, would love people listening to this to come away from anything or come away from this with anything, it's, um, it's that it, it is possible to put your kind of heart and soul into making something uh, and making something that's really authentic and it's really you and it's really, you know, 100% self-expression and to have people say, you suck. And, <laughs> and then you live to tell, and you do live to tell the tale. Um, 
and it's it, you know it's interesting it would have it really would have crushed me a few years ago and actually now i'm seeing it as more of a sort of a you know a sort of baptism of some kind you know it's a sort of test it's almost the sort of universe saying all right you want to be an artist you really want to you really want to do this well this is what this is how bad it can be are you going to stick around or what and then that's the cha- it feels like that's the challenge that sort of in my in the way I, t- I tell this story to myself, of course, <laughs> um, that's the, that's the sort of challenge that's being thrown down to me is, are you going to keep keep doubling down? Are you going to keep doing this? And for me, I'm like, absolutely. Like it hasn't wavered my commitment to this, to going down this road at all. This is where the magic lies is that we keep, I think I've been following you for three, almost four years now. And and, uh, and when you tell the story right now, it for me, it's obvious that Parallax was a bigger project you took on and it made you stretch your creativity and take some risks. And in a way, we could say right now, because we have our nose on it, that it feels like the risks didn't pay off, at least in the way we assume off should be you know a bigger audience more money on patreon coverage on the website but it's also beautiful to see how much you've grown in the last four years and that you're still going for it because this is what you just said like you are still going for it and and so probably in one or two years from now we'll be able to talk about another project where you stretch yourself and you wouldn't have been able to do it if it were not for Palax before. So I, I want to go back to the on art and money because I feel it's it's important. I feel a lot of people are in this uh, struggle between desires and reality. You mentioned recently, last month maybe, that you were contemplating the idea of taking regular job and keep creativity and your personal projects detached from the financial pressure. And you said something about realizing that having money attached to projects made you less creative as well. It's very interesting for me because this is something I ask myself uh, almost every month, especially in the last year, where um, I keep doing things not for the money, but then it's becoming harder and harder to feel light about creating. And I'm always thinking maybe next month I'm just going to take a normal job. Where are you at right now in this thinking? Yeah, is this something you're, you're planning to do? Or is it just like like me, something that comes all the time and at the end you're like, ah, whatever, I, I, I'll stick to my to my habits for a little bit longer? Yeah, I think that's where I am at the moment. I mean, I was ready to do it to, to sort of leave this kind of, freelancing life behind um definitely at the end of the summer when we we um we moved again from brighton to london i've only delayed it i think because um this project with the new york times has has sort of come up um when it has and it's an interesting project and so i decided to kind of to keep doing it a little bit longer but actually yeah i i still it's still something um so for me it's not something that sort of has always sort of come up once a month is like maybe i should do something else it's a new it's a very new thing for me i think you know as early as or as recent as a year ago the idea of getting a normal job you know giving up on the freelancing and making the creativity a hobby for me was just the definition of like failure that's when you failed right if you go if you go back to the the normal world and it just kind of becomes a hobby because the almost like you know the the mission for me when i started this freelance journey what was it maybe eight years ago now and i think it's the mantra for a lot of people is you know that idea of find what you love and then find a way to make money from it but you know that's the sort of tim ferris 
you know, slash Chris Gilbo type mantra of how to be a creative person in, in this new world. And I did that, you know, I I found these this kind of storytelling and then I found a way to make money from it. And there was that year when I was being paid by Fusion and then there was the, the stuff on Patreon. And I, yeah, I was just surprised to find that earning money from my creative work, knowing that it was my creative work that had to pay my bills. Maybe, let, maybe that's, that's the phrasing that's the difference. It's fine maybe to make something and then if you sell it, great. But it's it's when it's your creativity is aware that it is also in charge of paying the bills that you start to have a problem. And I was just very surprised that as, as soon as my first Patreon funded videos, I was making those at the start of 2016, my creativity retreated a bit and it was going no we need to make a video now that's um going to do really well on you know on youtube now because we need this patreon number to go up and this sort of thing it was i just really lost it got to the extent that i stopped you know in in april of 2016 i had to take a few months off because i just suddenly had lost the motivation and it had stopped being fun and so that's a new thing for me is you know actually to separate those things to to maybe to maybe just have a a job that basically pays the bills, but isn't that isn't so demanding on your creativity that you still have some energy and some bandwidth left to create on the side appeals to me just because I, I feel like then maybe my creative voice will feel the freedom that I really want to give it. And that's sort of that's what's become really important to me, I think, in the last year or so is finding that that expression, that self-expression and in a way that, that isn't worried about the outcomes of that. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I, and I have friends as well. I've, I've got a friend of mine who, who wrote a whole novel just by getting up at six in the morning and writing for an hour and a half before work. Um, and he's got a novel that's coming out in May next year. And that really opened my eyes as well to the possibility that it doesn't have to be the, your job. You, you know, people write screenplays all the time. You can do a I know an hour a day and you can write a screenplay of a draft of a screenplay in six weeks and you know novels can be written in, in half a year that way so I think there are other ways I think just that idea that it, that you're not a successful artist until you are a full-time paid artist I think is is a damaging definition I think yeah I think there's there are lots of ways to do it and it should be said it's horses for courses you know some ways of right for some people and also it changes over time it might be that in the in the next year getting a you know a reliable job so i can take a really big creative risk is the right thing for a year and then the year afterwards maybe it's it will feel right to go back to the freelancing um, i don't think there's one definite way one correct way to do it all the time you're done with parallax almost right now what's what's your next i mean you mentioned you were interested in going for fiction do you know what's your next creative project i don't know it specifically yet i i do think though yes my study of my practice of storytelling i've researched a lot and spent a lot of time um learning about how to tell fiction stories as a way to improve my non-fiction and the perhaps inevitable outcome of that is that I've become really interested in fiction also because it feels like the the best way now for me to really play with the fire that we were talking about earlier you know to really have no boundaries to really pursue kind of creative expression as pure a way as I can and because uh, you know in some ways as I said right at the start you know, creating Delve and the whole educational mission was a way of hiding, I think, a way of protecting myself from the kind of scorn or the 
rejection of an audience um and i think i still think in some ways non-fiction is that also you know relying on on documentary as a as a way for me anyway is safe and what scares me and uh, something i've never tried since i was about 10 years old is to use my imagination um you know 100 um you know i've never in my whole life invented a character you know my adult life you know um beside the alien beside the alien narrator that was she was the first one yeah but you know to create a real human character who's actually believable i have no idea whether i'm capable of that and you know it's i've just found myself you know watching your progress with your screenplay and other friends who are working on fiction that that's something that i'd like to know if i am capable of doing so yeah my plan for next year is to try some because i'm a visual storyteller i think i'd like to write some screenplays but i have no idea really on how that will manifest itself i don't know if i'd want to write a feature or a short or anything like that and i've got no idea how that's going to work on patreon either because i don't think people are going to give me money <laughs> for a screenplay so that might have to, i might have to take a pause on the patreon for a while as well that's one of the problem with not the problem because it's not patreon's uh, problem but it's a problem as a filmmaker it takes so much time to release something how do you get support for this type of uh, long projects but that's for another topic i've loved talking with you about all this i i know i had 100 more questions but i tried to to keep it as tight as possible hopefully you got to say your stories the way you wanted to uh, yeah i felt i rambled a bit so i hope uh, i hope i i didn't sort of uh, i felt my answers were very long but uh, <laughs> this that's what i'm looking for my questions are very long as well so <laughs> i i want to thank you again for uh, your time and i will share on the page that goes with this episode all the information for people to find you, all the information about the projects and works and books you mentioned. And that's that's about it. Thank you very much, Adam. Yeah, thanks for your time, Natalie. I really enjoyed that. There's some great questions. A few more words before you hang up on me. To find all the notes about this episode and how you can get in touch with today's guest, go on mentorless.com slash podcast. And while you're there, take a minute to let me know your thoughts about what you just listened to. If you did enjoy this episode, please recommend it to your friends. I'd love nothing more than being able to continue this audio experiment and turn it into a regular podcast. I believe hearing the stories of fellow filmmakers and creatives is a potent way for all of us to grow. How you feel about this first season and how it spreads will determine the future of this project. So, if you want to be heard, use your voice. See you on the next episode and in the meantime, create and question.